want to greet you this morning in Christ's name. It's good to be here with you. I've enjoyed the uh, service so far and uh, trust that the remainder of our time will be a time of inspiration and blessing and that uh, we can uh, continue to learn. I've uh, entitled the message in a question form, What Shall We Do Then? Can anyone tell me where that where that question is found in Scripture? What shall we do then? It's mentioned three times in in consecutive order, just within a several verses. Anyone know where it's found? Romans six. It may. There's another place. Well, it's in the bulletin also. If you see the, the text, it's found in Luke chapter 3. And I apologize, we're having a little bit of technical issue here. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 3. And it's the case where John the Baptist is on the scene. And uh, boy, what a fiery preacher that man was. Uh, and he's addressing the crowd. In three different times, with three different groups of people, the same question was asked. Let's start reading in uh, verse 4, or sorry, verse 7, chapter 3, Luke 3, verse 7. And it says, Then he, John the Baptist, said to the multitude that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Verse 9, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers also asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not imitate, sorry, do not intimidate anyone or Accuse falsely and be content with your wages. I want to direct your attention to a greater principle that is, that is wrapped up in the form of the question that we have as the title and also the question that these various people asked John the Baptist. Over the years, the Anabaptist community, particularly those from the Amish and possibly more conservative, uh, those groups of uh, more conservative values, 
have taken a, a hit from others in the faith-based community as having a works-based Christianity. And I'm not denying that there is not some of that. Uh, certainly is present in, in, in various groups. However, I would like to speak into that matter this morning for a moment. Over the years, Keith has done an exceptional job of giving foundational teaching on our Christianity being found in sola Christus, in Christ alone. And I borrowed that phrase from some of the reformers who used it frequently and freely in a lot of their writings. In fact, I want to step back just for a moment to the mid-1500s for a bit to see schools of thought. The church during that era, the era of what we refer to as the Dark Ages, kept the scriptures from the common folk. The leaders of that day purposely did not translate the scriptures into the known language of the common people. Unless you knew Latin, you were not able to read the scriptures. And one of the common ways that autocratic leaders control people is by keeping them in ignorance. I'm so grateful for the advice and the, um, the, uh, the word that a mentor friend of mine gave me uh, years ago, when uh, he said, he said, James, an informed church is a healthy church. And I've shared that with the pastoral team, and it's our desire to as much as possible, there's some things that we can't share with you just simply for the level of trust that people share with us. But as much as possible, we want to be upfront with you and open and keep things, keep you in the know. Um, catch up here a little bit. <clears throat> so, the leaders at that day kept the people in ignorance. Now, you can imprison an ignorant person, and I use that phrase carefully. I don't mean someone who is stupid or who is who is the, what some people refer to as dumb. I'm just referring, when I say ignorant, I'm just talking about people that just simply don't know better. You can imprison someone like that, and they will always be subjects to their masters. What I mean by that is that if you, there's story after story in history, even our American history, uh, when we think about the slavery that was in part of of the whole story of uh, in America. You know, when you were born in slavery, that's the only thing you knew. You were ignorant to anything else. And, 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 and we, we know that, 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 that people that have a lack of knowledge uh, will stay subject to the master. But it is much more difficult to imprison the spirit of a person who has adequate knowledge. Jesus himself declared that if the Son shall make you free, you shall be what? 
free indeed, absolutely. It is possible to put chains around a free person, but it is nigh impossible to, to, to chain the spirit of that person. You know what I'm talking about? You can put a person in prison who is free and his spirit will remain free. Now back to the Reformation. One of the key elements that brought light to this dark age was the Gutenberg Press. Johannes Gutenberg, back uh, a, a goldsmith uh, by trade, back in the mid-1400s, I think it's around 1440, developed the, the, the press, and, and it brought a huge shift to the Roman culture of that day. His development of the printing press also brought printed material into the hands of the common people, including the scriptures. And as more and more people received copies of the word of God, an internal shift took place to the place that it caused men and women and children alike to choose physical death over spiritual life. These radicals insisted as they read the scriptures that you must put shoe leather to the words of scripture. You see, for the previous thousand years, they had witnessed a faith-only religion. Though it was skewed, it was all about words. It was not about practice. And when they finally were able to read the scriptures for themselves, they saw no other way for Christianity to work than to put flesh and blood into what they read. Now, unfortunately, 600 years, 500, 600 years, this side of the Reformation, we see the dangers of the two ditches. And when I'm talking about the two ditches, you know, it just occurred to me as I, as I thought about the ditches. <laughs> Interestingly enough, whenever we talk about the, the perspective of, of ditches, or particularly two ditches, we always speak from the perspective of being in the middle of the road. Isn't that interesting? And sometimes it might help us to think about the fact that we may be in one of those ditches and we need to find our way back to the center. But basically, out of the Reformation came two trains of thoughts. Protestantism placed a strong emphasis on being saved by faith alone. Now, the ditch in that camp places a period behind those two words and tends to stop there putting little or no teeth to the words of Scripture. The opposite ditch is to depend on the quality and the quantity, I might add, of works we accumulate to make ourselves right with God. Faith in this ditch insists on being measured, which ultimately defaults into performance. And I think many of us here this morning can probably identify with that ditch or with that camp. Now, we find a way forward 
by bringing the strengths of both camps to the center for a proper balance. If we look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace ye have been saved through faith, not of works. And that takes very little interpretation. It is very clear. By faith we are saved through faith. It is not based upon our works. Our relationship with Jesus Christ must have the foundation of a personal faith in the work of the cross. The words of Elisha Huffman says it right when he penned these words. There is no other hope. There is no other plea. Salvation full, salvation free must what? Come alone through thee. Let's sing that chorus. There is no other hope. There is no other plea. Salvation full, salvation free must come alone through thee. Yes, indeed, our journey begins with a personal relationship, relationship of faith in Jesus Christ alone. The pastoral team here, I think we've worked hard to make sure that our young converts and and the older folks alike understand this foundational principle. But if we stop there, we have only touched the foundation and have not built the house. The house is what we see, not the foundation. If we cannot see the foundation, how do we know that we have a good footer? By the way the house stands, correct? Jesus, he, re- uh, uh, he uh, reiterated this in, the, in the, this principle in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27, when he talked about the house that was built on sand and the house that was built on a rock. Your actions equates the house. Your faith equates the foundation. How much good does a foundation do if there is no house? It's just some concrete in the ground. And so the balance to a foundation of faith is to put flesh and blood to your belief. James chapter 2 verse 17. Thus also faith by itself If it does not have works, is what? Dead. It's dead. John the Baptist understood this principle even before the book of James. Inspired by the direction of the Holy Spirit, this fiery preacher, preacher, he minced no words when he addressed the crowds, you brood of vipers. Wow, I'm sure he had their attention. (laughs) And while his style flies in the face of proper etiquette, uh, I am intrigued by the response of the people. Now before we look at the product, I want to look at the message or the method that John used. I want to look at the, the product and the method. John was ordained to, if we look at the passage here that we just read for our text, John was ordained to prepare the people for the coming of Christ. 
The message that he carried was straightforward. Repent. Or it means change your ways. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or it's, it's coming soon. We see that in the book of, of Matthew. John had the proper sequence in order. When he first called his audience to repentance. The avenue of faith comes through the method of repentance. We must first dethrone self before we can can trust in Jesus Christ, put Jesus Christ on the throne. We first must dethrone ourselves. And so John cuts right to to the core of their shoddy foundation by denouncing faith in their fathers. Whoa, I'm sure that caught their attention. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That would be the equivalent of having somebody come in here and instruct us not to put any trust or any confidence in the Mennonite or Amish roots that we have. Immediately after his call to repentance, John then calls for the people to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Fruit is the product of faith. If there is no fruit, it is a pretty clear indication that there is little or no faith. In fact, listen to what Jesus says about this, or John says about this. He goes on later on uh, uh, in verse 9. He says, Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I've made the mistake in the past of misquoting this verse by saying, Every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down. Now, what word did I miss? Good. And by that, we can deduce that our lives will perpetually produce fruit. The question we have to ask, is it producing good fruit? You know, those who tend to be critical of others who focus on works are often oblivious to the fact that they also produce works in their own lives. Even if you don't do anything is an indication of some work. It's just the wrong kind. It's not a good fruit. So the reason we give careful attention to this detail is because of what he says later on in verse 9. He says that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. In other words, the axe is a testament of judgment. Sincere and true faith will always produce good works. Let me say that again so you catch that. Sincere and true faith always produces good works. Now, the question that was asked If the question that these people asked was important to them to ask, then 
I would suggest that it begs a response from us as well. Like I said, there was three groups of people that asked the same question. What shall we do then? And curiously enough that three of the four answers that John gave to them he focused squarely on the attitude toward material possessions and finances did you catch that when he gave the responses that he did the first one that he gave is when the when the general people asked well what should we do then his response was, well, share with those who lack. And then the tax collectors came to him and said, well, well, what shall we do? And his response to them was, don't cheat anyone. And then the soldiers came to him and said, well, what, what shall we do? And first of all, he says, well, don't intimidate anyone or don't accuse them falsely. And then he follows up by saying that be content with what you have or be content with your wage. My boss has made a wise observation, and I've, I've heard him say it numerous times, and initially it didn't impact me as much as it has later when I've heard him repeat it. But one of the things he says is he said, take money out of any equation and just think of how different our responses may be. I'll let you ruminate on that for a while. Think about it this next week and the following weeks. Take money out of any equation. And how different would our responses be? I feel for some time that, that we may lack an understanding on the principle of brotherhood mutual assistance. And I take responsibility, I for one take responsibility for that because we may not have taught it as well as what we should have to now. And so for the remainder of, of our time together this morning, I want to I wanna specifically address or hone in on that first response that John gave to the audience where it talks about sharing with those who lack. If we were to take a, a, just a synopsis of the New Testament, starting with John the Baptist, and sort of moving through the, through the New Testament, we see a common theme. And, and, and part of that, John's instruction to the people was, was fairly general and broad. Basically what he was saying to others is that when there is true repentance it will produce an other's focus mentality or mindset. Then Jesus comes along several years later, and, and he, his message was very similar to what John started out with, and he taught and illustrated, not only did he teach, but he also illustrated that same theme. He set the pace for the heavenly kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we would go back and just take the time to even just look at the Sermon on the Mount, which we won't this morning, but I, I just picked out one verse out of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Jesus instructs the people, he says, give to him who asks from you. 
And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not take away. Uh, the, the, the shift in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus was, was introducing the new kingdom, was it goes counter to human reasoning. I think, I think you've probably heard the phrase that, that it was an upside-down kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. It's counter to how we typically would think as humans. From there, we move into the apostolic age, and particularly in the book of Acts. And where we find brotherhood mutual aid being an integral part of New Testament Christianity. Under the fire of persecution, believers put to practice the principles that both John and Jesus had taught. Perhaps they understood the the strength of, of kindred spirits voluntarily sharing goods and providing mutual assistance to brothers in times of need. And, and we won't go to it, but I could, I could take you to at least five different passages in the book of Acts where we clearly see the New Testament church freely sharing with each other in a time of need. I think they set the pace for, for Christianity. And then we move on into the, uh, the apostles, and the apostles fleshed out in various uh, books of, of, of the New Testament the principle of generosity in various epistles, probably the one of the most classic ones being Galatians chapter 6. And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul encourages a general spirit of generosity. And then he gives some more pointed uh, instruction in verse 10 of, of, uh, of Galatians 6. And, and, and he brings out, that, that the, 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 the first needs need to be met within the body, the local body. Therefore, in fact, turn to the book of Galatians, because I don't have all the, the, the scripture up here, but turn to the book of Galatians 6, and, and we want to look at a couple of those verses there. But verse 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially those who are of the household of faith. The attitude of love toward fellow Christians produce practical actions to meet real financial and physical needs within the body. In other words, love puts, puts action to our words. Now, historically, the, uh, the Anabaptist culture has seen the value of mutual assistance in times of needs. You saw the photos that I put on the, on the PowerPoint of uh, people coming together in times of need. Some time ago, I stopped at a Chipotle Mexican grill. Um, boy, just looking at this cup makes me hungry. And uh, I was so intrigued by what said on this cup that I, I, I forgot to take the straw out. I left it just the way it was when I finished the drink. But there was a writing on the back by Malcolm Gladwell. Now, I didn't recognize the name. I don't know if anybody recognizes the name, Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you do. He is, a, he is an author of, of a numerous books and also an editor of The New Yorker. Uh, and um, he wrote an article, or this little uh, um, 
blurb here on the back of the cup, and I'm going to read it to you this morning. I grew up in Canada in an area of Ontario where there is a large community of Old Order Mennonites. And by the way, he was in Elmira, Ontario, which is Jake's uh, home uh, roots there where he was actually born. Old Orders, as they are known, are a religious group who lives in the 20th century as if the 20th century never happened. They avoid electricity, drive horse and buggies, leave school at 16, and they bale hay by hand. They dressed in plain black and white with straw hats over clean-shaven faces, and when a neighbor's barn burns down, they gather as a community to put it back up. When I was little, not long after we moved to Ontario, my father heard about a barn raising down the road, and he decided to join in. Now, they had just moved from... from uh, from England uh, into Ontario, and uh, then he goes on to say, my father is an, is an Englishman, a mathematician with a long bushy beard. He drove an imported Peugeot, uh, what's the name, how do you spell, uh, pronounce that, the uh, P-E-U-G-E, Peugeot, thank you, yeah, Peugeot. He uh, drove an imported Peugeot station wagon. He wore a tie always. We were skinny bookworms in knee socks and iron short sleeve shirts. You can imagine what I thought on the way to the barn raising. How on earth would a group of old orders accept us? This is what we always worried about, of course. If people of different colors and creeds are to get along, we think we need to, put, to practice approval and agreement and acceptance. But my father didn't accept the Mennonite way of life that day, nor did the old orders come to some uh, kind of epiphany about the virtues of European cars and electricity and advanced degrees of mathematics. There was a barn to raise. And so as long as there was work to be done, it didn't much matter that the professor down the road with the three skinny sons reading Narnia, uh, a Narnia book in the car, belong to one century and the rest of the crew to another. The world could use a little more of that attitude, couldn't it? My father joined the line of men passing lumber in the work, uh, to the workers on the roof. Midway through the day, they fed us all bologna sandwiches and mounds of sauerkraut. And in the evening, when the last nail was hammered in, we got in our Peugeot and drove away. We see this concept being repeated many times in scripture, or in, in history, sorry. When severe persecution overwhelmed the Swiss brothers during the Reformation, the Dutch brothers from the west and the north came to their aid. This didn't happen because they had personal family members or church connections. Instead, it was solely based on brotherly care of those with similar faith. In other words, they were putting flesh and blood to this principle. We see it happening again in the Bolshevik Revolution during the time that the Mennonite colonies in Russia were under attack. Mennonite churches from America and Canada came together and organized Mennonite Central Committee, which, or otherwise known as MCC, 
to bring relief to the orphans and the people who were displaced from their homes. Again, this kind of, of aid did not happen because there was family connections or formal church connections. It happened because there was a need and people jumped to action. Our family witnessed this kind of compassion quite a few years ago when our neighbor's burn, a barn burned down. Austin woke us up at about one o'clock in the morning the dad, Lyle's barn is on fire. I quickly called the fire department and it had already been contacted. But within about two and a half hours time, there was nothing but a pile of ashes uh, on where the barn once stood. It just brought in some fresh straw and it just ignited like a tinder box. But the impressive thing was that by seven o'clock the next morning when I went to work, they had already moved 60 cows down the, down the road to the neighbors. They had already brought in an excavator, dug a big hole, and removed the remaining embers into that hole by 7 o'clock the next morning. When I got home that night from work at 5 o'clock, they were already digging footers to rebuild. Now, you might think that's not a big deal, but let me tell you, they used to milk stanchion, and they were going to switch to parlor because of needing to rebuild. They were going to switch to parlor. Do you know what, Daryl, tell me, what kind, of, what kind of planning does that take? It's huge, isn't it? has to be. A lot more than 24 hours. But within 12 hours' time, they had come up with a plan, and they were digging a footer. They already had the cement trucks out there pouring the footer. Within four weeks, less than four weeks' time, they were milking in their parlor. Time doesn't permit, nor probably would it be expedient for me to, to give you more examples, which I'm sure we could do. But suffice it to say that this trait has been one of great strength and value to our heritage, in this heritage. Uh, again, I would just go back and say, I think it's because people long ago, <laughs> as they read the scriptures, uh, they said, look, it has to be more than just faith. It had, there has to be an outworking. There has to be action. Love requires action. They read the words that we find in First. John chapter 3, verse 17. And John puts it in a question form. The timid person that he was, the loving person that he was, puts it in a question form. He simply says, but whoever has this world's goods and seeth his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how dwells the love of God in him? Paul, being more of a forceful person, gives it in the imperative. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, uh, a, a good thought. It's not an option. It's given in the imperative. What law is being fulfilled? Well, if we go back in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 14, it says, for all the law is fulfilled, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does this ring true with the words of Jesus? Certainly it does. And if that word burden there that we see in Galatians chapter 6, bear ye one another's burdens. Uh, the, the, the Greek word is baros. It means the weight or a load through the idea of going down. Now, baros, I think I said baros, I think it's baros is actually a nautical term that references a ship that is overloaded. Are you aware that every ship is built with a sweet spot, a capacity to carry a certain amount of weight in the ship? If it doesn't have a certain amount of weight that it is carrying, it is equally as dangerous out on the seas as one that is overloaded. It bounces and tosses back and forth in a way that it doesn't when it has a burden. If we if you take your Bibles, take your Bibles and look there in chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 2, we see Paul's instruction. He says, bear ye one another's burdens, bear ye one another's baras. And then let's jump down to verse 5. And then he says, but let each one bear his own load or his own burden, I think is what the King James says. Now, here's one of those classic cases, and I've told you about this already, that when we come into translation, we don't always do justice to what it's being said. When it got translated, uh, we used both, both cases, we used the word burden. Bear you one another's burdens, and then later in verse 5, let each one carry his own burden. It's actually two different Greek words. The one in verse 5 is not baros, but it's rather, rather it is fortion, fortion. Each one should bear his own fortion. It's the same word that, that Jesus used when he says, my yoke is easy, my fortion is light. There is a certain amount of burden that each of you is expected to carry. In fact, you perform best when you carry it. It's not a burden. God's yoke is not a burden that weighs us down to the point of baras. It's, it's, it's a burden that, that causes us actually to sail well. If you wouldn't have that burden, you'd get tossed and pitched around just like a ship without weight. So let each man carry his own for a fortuas, fortuan, fortuan, fortian, if I say it correctly. But a ship that is baras is in danger of the seas because it is loaded to the point of taking on water and sinking. we are instructed to help those who have a baras. Let each, or uh, uh, bear ye one another's baras. Now, 
the independent nature and tenor of the Western society fights hard against the principle of Barras. The common availability of commercial insurance mitigates the practice of brotherhood mutual aid among us. And by the way, when I talk about brotherhood mutual aid, it goes far beyond the third Sunday offering of medical aid. It's a lifestyle, okay? It's a lifestyle. Brotherhood mutual aid is a lifestyle, a conviction that reaches far beyond the financial aspect of this principle. Just last week, we experienced firsthand how this principle worked. And I know of very few cultures that rally around the family of a deceased person like I witnessed again last week in Lil Holder's funeral. People travel from hundreds and thousands of miles to, Baras, to, to, to support, to, to give mutual assistance, to give mutual support to someone who is Baras. Neighboring churches are called upon to assist with food needs. It is a beautiful testament, testimony of the law of Christ being fulfilled. But today, the world imposes on us. Are you aware, are you aware that, that, the, that insurance has been and continues to be the greatest single driver of economic growth. Are you aware of that? Insurance companies. I mean, just think about it. There's car insurance, there's health insurance, there's life insurance, there's travel insurance, there is uh, uh, house insurance, there's term life insurance. Just last week, I got something through the mail that is offering for $18 a month, only $18 a month that you can insure your sewer lines and your plumbing lines and your electric in the house, which can cost lots of money if something would go bad with it. So mutual assistance goes far beyond just the financial. However, many times... Many times it does require assistance in financial needs, which typically can make people squirm a bit uncomfortably. Now let's just compare the difference between mutual assistance and commercial assistance. Mutual assistance promotes community. On the commercial side, it promotes individualism. On the other hand, mutual aid puts our trust in God. It places our trust in God. The other side, it places trust in man. The other side, it shows compassion for others. But on the other side of, of commercial insurance, it cares for my needs and my wants and my, uh, myself. Brotherhood mutual aid involves voluntary giving. But on the other side, it requires compulsory payment. Mutual aid 
fulfills the law of Christ like we already read. And of course, the other one is not fulfilling the law of Christ. And the last one that I have is that as a recipient, we receive it humbly. But in the case where we pay for insurance, it is an expected, uh, something that we expect. Now, we lament and possibly even berate the idea of Obamacare or the Affordable Health Care Act. Oh, I think I've been one of those, by the way. But have you stopped to consider, at least in part, what fostered this need? If the church would have fulfilled the law of Christ, would Obamacare be necessary? Now, now it's, it's probably not just as easy as of course not. I mean, this, I understand that this question is way bigger than, than a simple yes or no in some ways. <clears throat> and probably to some degree will not completely come to terms with it. But, can we at least commit ourselves to do what we can to assist? We can't we can cover all needs for all people, but can we at least commit ourselves to assist those within our own local body or of those of like-minded faith? I'd like to leave you with three concluding thoughts for you to consider as we go from here. The first one is, simply that mutual assistance should primarily be a matter of conscience, not of equation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm troubled when I hear decisions being made solely on cost rather than conscience. If you take money out of the equation, would you rather line the pockets of some commercial insurance company that has few, if any, of the values that you hold? Or would you rather help your brother who shares similar values that you do? Now, typically, our mutual aid programs are less expensive than commercial companies. But that should not be the, t- the determining factor. That should not be the determining factor whether we join or not. It should be a matter of conscience that I help my brother in need. Secondly, mutual aid calls for both generous giving and humble receiving in times of need. Scripture makes that observation that today's giver may well be on the receiving end of assistance tomorrow. The first recorded mutual assistance that we know about and what eventually led to our commercial insurance companies dates back to 3000 BC. That's a long time ago. But that's where Chinese merchants came together and agreed to divide their cargo evenly among their ships. So if there were 10 merchants with 10 different uh, products to be shipped somewhere, an equal amount of each product would be divided among 10 ships. So let's say I had corn. 
I put a tenth of my corn in this ship, a tenth in this one, and all the way down to the ten ships. You have um, um, uh, fabric, and then you're going to put a tenth of yours in this one, a tenth, a tenth, a tenth, a tenth. That way, if one of the ships got lost at sea, it wasn't just one merchant that took the hit for everybody. But we all shared a tenth. We, all, we only lost a tenth of our product. That's a beautiful picture, really, of what mutual assistance looks like. Um, and, uh, and so I would, I, would, I would just say this, that, that I would much rather be a person who gives his entire life without ever being on the receiving end. But I'm also well aware that, that there, I, I could very possibly need your assistance at some point in the future. And, and that really is comforting to know that I have brothers around me, that if I would have a Barras, that I know you'd step up to the plate for me. And I, I appreciate that. The last thing that I just want to leave with you is that all members, all members share equal responsibility for the spiritual health and the physical obligations of brotherhood. I think sometimes it's easy, and I put myself as a younger married man, and, and it's probably easy for, younger, for the younger generation or possibly those who see themselves as less fortunate than the wealthier members in the body to shirk responsibility from mutual assistance. Jesus taught, I don't know if you ever stopped to think about it, but Jesus taught that, that he will give more to those who are faithful with less. And so if you are faithful with less, God will give you more. Being committed to mutual assistance also means that I am willing to put some of my wants on hold because I see my brother's needs as being greater than my wants. And by the way, and I don't say this arrogantly, I don't say it boastfully or, or to pat ourselves on the back, but just to be very honest with you, this is one reason that we as a pastoral team put the retreat on hold. And it's, it's not that we couldn't have paid our own pockets, but we know that there are some needs within the congregation. We, and one of the brothers just said, look, is it right for us to spend that money uh, when we have these needs uh, within the congregation? And I thought it was wise, wise uh, advice. And uh, I, I commend them for that kind of attitude. It means that I will sacrifice. I will gladly sacrifice for my brother. But in order for me to do so, I must develop a kingdom vision, just like Brother Laverne shared last Sunday. I must develop a kingdom vision that brings to focus an eternal perspective that supersedes, far supersedes the goods of this world. So I just leave you with a question again that was asked in our text. What shall we do then? And I would conclude with saying, give as has been given to you. Let's pray. Then I'm going to ask Keith to, to dismiss us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you again, thanking you for your blessings, your goodness to us, and for the ways that you have given to us. Lord, help us to have a heart that reaches out to those who have a baras, who have a burden that is far greater than they can bear. Help us to have a... Um, a, a heart of love 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.